Hello, welcome to my podcast, Revolution, the Chinese Culture Revolution, and the French Revolution. This is episode four, Revolution is an Insurrection. In my last episode, we learned that in France, the Estates General finally convened. And initially, at least, nothing turned out as expected. In China, the Cultural Revolution was underway. And in the early days of it, the students took over everything, turning everything upside down, including violence. In this episode, the commoners, or also known as the National Assembly in France, make a vow to stick together, and they take the famous tennis court oath. In Paris, violence breaks out, and the Bastille is toppled. In China, Mao changes directions and sows more confusion and chaos The war on culture takes shape and it accelerates. Mao Zedong said, A revolution is not a dinner party or writing an essay or painting a picture or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. End quote. Once the third estate at Versailles in mid-June in the year 1789 recast itself as the National Assembly, any hope of reconciliation with the other two orders was lost. The recasting of itself moved the focus that the National Assembly was now the only assembly of the people. She invited the other two orders to join, but would proceed on her own if necessary. The National Assembly claimed to be the sovereign for France and dared anyone or any entity to dissolve her. In reality, though, it had two challenges. One, it was in contrast to royal authority, of course, and two, the other two orders had to be resolved. All this drama by the National Assembly, the Estates General early on, didn't seem to phase the king. He naively brushed it off as harmless bickering between the deputies, and he did not intervene. But others in his royal coterie were nervous by the early developments. 
the king's war minister, secretly fortified Paris. Eventually, his advisors convinced the king that something was up and recommended to him that he convene a royal session to reassert his control. By that time, most of the deputies from the clergy estate had already joined with the National Assembly, and a handful of the nobles had done so as well. So the king convened the royal session, but never told or notified anyone from the National Assembly. So on the morning of June 20th, 1789, in a driving rain, the Assembly deputies converged on their meeting place for a meeting, but found the doors to the building were locked and guarded by soldiers. They soon were informed that a royal session had been convened, and it would take precedence over the National Assembly. The royal session was scheduled to begin two days from then. Of course, this led to the outrage by the National Assembly and heightened suspicion about what were the king's motives. The National Assembly then decided to meet anyway and took control of the king's indoor tennis court nearby. And there, with numerous onlookers, the deputies took an oath to never disperse until the, quote, constitution of the realm and public regeneration are established and assured, end of quote. The famous tennis court oath. The royal session was held on June 23rd, with the king in attendance. He read a speech that admonished the estates general, criticizing her for getting nothing done and to order the three orders be maintained and that the National Assembly separate. To that request, the National Assembly refused. The National Assembly had taken on a life of her own, energized, it appears, by its public support. At this moment, history records the emergence of certain individuals and leaders of this period. Maribel, Sayez, Mornier, they are known for their oratories during this time. Crowds came to hear them speak, and usually with great applause. The next few days saw more defections from the clergy and the noble estates over to the third estate. It was now clear that the king could no longer depend on the first two orders to obey him. On June 27, 1789, the king ordered the first two estates to join the National Assembly. Many saw this as a reconciliation and that now order could be restored. An end of problem. After all, the initial big issue that faced the Estates General at its opening was the vote by head or vote by a state. And now that had been resolved in favor of the former. The king then dissolved the Estates General. Could this now be a good sign for which the nation could heal and build a consensus? A plenum of the CCP had been planned to convene on August 8, 1966, soon after Mao Zedong's return to Beijing. The stated purpose of the meeting was to endorse the chairman's views. 
There, Mao publicly accused Liu Shaoqi of running, a, of running a dictatorship. On a secret ballot vote at the plenum, on the last day of it, Lin Biao was voted to take over as vice chair over Liu Shaoqi. The plenum also issued an important statement. The statement turned out to officially open the Cultural Revolution. The decision also purported to be an attack or a warning to those in power that there were some of them believed to be capitalist. The CCP Central Committee officially appointed Mao's Culture Revolution Group as a decision-making organ for China. The decision on August 8th has has come down to be called the 16 Articles. Under 16 headings were the guidelines on the implementation of the Cultural Revolution. Trust the masses. Use big character posters were just two of the guidelines to maximize the exposure of all monsters and demons. The articles also, to everyone's surprise, alerted everyone to look out for those that accused the masses of being counter-revolutionaries. This was a complete reversal to what had been the game plan for the last two months. In other words, those that had been accused in the summer of being rightist and counter-revolutionaries now had the chairman's support. Things had reversed, boomeranged. Those that had been imprisoned were released. Workers in factories used the Cultural Revolution as an excuse to retaliate against their superiors. CCP members were attacked the same way. Mao made it clear that the students were off-limits and no action was was to be taken against them. He had a practical reason for doing this. He needed them to start the revolution. He used their passion and eagerness to fight. They were easily manipulated and impressionable, and they were easy to mold. He wanted the students to help him throw out the monsters and demons and battle the four olds. The Red Guards now became official. Mao encouraged the Red Guards to become militarized like a militia. The Red Guards promised to help Mao and the revolution to the death if necessary. They started wearing military-like uniforms, donning red armbands with gold characters. And the violence continued. And it was unprecedented violence. And remember, Mao had given the students immunity. And the students took full advantage of that. While the Cultural Revolution Group was not openly promoting or encouraging the violence, they were cavalier about it. King Louis XVI's edict to merge the Estates General into the National Assembly was an optimistic development. But it seemed to only generate a muted and short-lived good vibe. The National Assembly and the issues it was tackling were only part of the story. Things were uneasy in Paris and elsewhere. Many were getting impatient with the National Assembly 
because they were not resolving the pressing issues of the time. Tensions over food shortages and rising prices were high. Additionally, the presence of military personnel in increasing numbers was noticeable over that summer, and it only fanned the uneasiness. There was a fear the king had called up the troops to arrest the deputies and the other revolutionaries. The National Assembly, in early July, requested the king to withdraw the troops, and he ignored that request. Adding to the tensions, the queen and her allies were again working behind the scenes to remove Jacques Necker, and he would eventually resign by that August. That event, his resignation, did not go well with the people. Add that to the growing tensions. The mood in Paris by then had turned electric. On July 11, 1789, news reached Paris that the king refused the assembly's demand to remove the troops. The next day, Paris broke out in insurrection and civil disobedience. A young Paris lawyer, Camille de Molins, lit the match. He told a Paris mob that NECA had been dismissed and that troops were moving on Paris. He called on the citizens to take up arms. On the morning of July 14th, a mob marched to a military hospital to get cannon and small arms. The mob eventually converged on the Hotel de Ville to meet and receive further orders. A small distance away was a large state prison called the Bastille. And after a violent and deadly melee between the guards protecting the prison and the mob, the Bastille surrendered. The prison at that moment was poorly manned and only partially occupied. Some of the guards even defected to help the mob. Its commander was captured and the mob ordered him to be beheaded. The National Assembly heard about the capture of the Bastille and repeated its request to the king to withdraw the troops. The next day, the king agreed and ordered the troops dispersed. The king only agreed to do this, though, after he learned the troops' morale was low and they were sympathetic to the citizens. From that point forward, the king could not rely on his army. The Bastille had a bad reputation with the citizens. To them, it represented and was a symbol of evil, of royal authority and tyranny. Two persons began to emerge in this nascent government. Jean-Sylvain Ballet, who became the mayor of Paris. Marquis de Lafayette was the new military leader. Both of these men had acclaimed reputations, particularly Lafayette, who had helped the American colonies in their war for independence 10 years earlier. Lafayette would command about 40,000 armed citizens and a National Guard, and they would be needed. The violence in Paris spread to the rural areas. The feudal system was now under attack by the peasants. I am pretty sure with the storming and capture of the Bastille and the spread of violence, could now be considered the inaugural event of the French Revolution. The storming and surrender of the Bastille 
represents a moment where the masses thrust themselves into the process of reform and defended the revolution and the National Assembly. Clearly, the king's authority was being challenged. But I also think, as I alluded to before, the National Assembly's authority was being challenged too. Too many, it was being too overcautious and not producing substantive and needed changes fast enough if it was ever going to do so. The king realized after the Bastille that he was compelled to accept all that had occurred since mid-June. The Estates General was gone, replaced with the National Assembly. There was no distinction between estates. The National Assembly had seized the authority as the sovereign for France with a mission to adopt a written constitution. The Queen and her allies worked feverishly behind the scenes to reverse all of this, but to no avail. Without the king initially realizing it, the capture of the Bastille was a sign of his weakness and imbued the masses with a sense that they had saved the National Assembly and that the masses were the true guardians of liberty. Three days after the Bastille fell, the king returned to Paris to address the people at the Hotel de Ville. He had donned the popular tricolor cockade in his hat to show support for the revolutionaries. He reassured the crowd the troops were being withdrawn and that he was recalling Jacques Necker. He also confirmed that Bali, as the mayor of Paris, and Lafayette was the commander of the new citizens' militia or National Guard. His appearance that day in Paris was hailed, but there were many issues still percolating that needed to be addressed, and within days of the king's appearance and assurances, violence began again in Paris. Bread prices were still too high, and the violence continued to spread throughout France. The Cultural Revolution Group's cavalier attitude toward the escalation of violence aside, on August 13, 1966, there was another mass rally in Beijing and more public beatings of alleged hooligans and counter-revolutionaries. On August 18th, there was an even bigger rally in Tiananmen Square. There, Mao addressed the Red Guards and appealed to them to destroy the four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. He also began to encourage them to create new ideas, new culture, new customs, and new habits. The trick, I suppose, would be to properly define these terms. It does seem a bit vague, and I cannot overstate that. The primary purpose of the Red Guards was to destroy the Four Olds, and the destruction of the Four Olds, the ultimate goal. As one observer noted at that time, the CCP wanted to destroy everything that had been built or relied upon in the past and to rebuild it all into something new. It was all smash, smash, smash. The death toll was mounting. There were estimates of 2,000 lives lost in Beijing in August and September of 1966 attributable to the violence. Churches were burned down, as were Buddhist temples. Looting and stealing were done, all in the name of destroying the past. 
Even pet cats, yes, cats, were targeted. They were a symbol of bourgeoisie decadence. They were killed or tortured. The Red Terror spread throughout China. The Red Guards assessed the status of families by assigning a black or red label to them. Red was good and desired for recruits into the Red Guard. Black was bad and singled out, locked up, forced into hard labor. The only thing sometimes separating a family's color tag was their background. A family of intellectuals or academic achievers were labeled black. Writers and journalists were in this group. Of course, some of this categorizing was entirely subjective, thus inconsistent. Lists were posted publicly of family names, their backgrounds, and the alleged crimes or transgressions they had committed. In some cases, all that was necessary to be labeled black was their profession. Landlord, banker were bad and labeled black. In some cases, the Red Guards hunted down and accused. Everything was under attack. Fashion, haircuts, words, actions. Anything could be claimed as being in the service of the bourgeoisie. Street names were changed. Books were burned. The depth and breadth of the destruction was appalling. In the next episode, I continue with the early stages of these revolutions. For France, the National Assembly adopts the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. For China, nothing escapes the grip of the Red Guards. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.